Hello and welcome back to The Garden Podcast. I'm Chris Young, editor of The Garden, which is a monthly magazine for RHS members. This podcast is all about the stories behind the stories in our glossy magazine pages. It's a chance to talk to gardeners, growers, designers, photographers and writers, delving deeper into the plants and gardening issues that interest and inspire us. First up today, a late flowering summer beauty that has made a resurgence after years languishing in the doldrums of plant unfashionability. I'm talking about crocosmias. They've got dazzling colour with arching stems of vibrant flowers in late summer and crocosmias are the subject of this month's plant profile. In fact, I've just planted quite a few in the beds around my patio at home. Their burnt orange and red should look great against the limestone house walls. I spoke to nurseryman John Foley who told me why this is a must-have plant for so many gardens. John, our author, Naomi Slade, interviewed you all about your passion for crocosmia, and it's turned out to be a really useful and, of course, beautiful article. Tell me, how long have you been growing them, and why are you so interested in these summer stalwarts? Crocosmias have uh, had a place in my heart ever since I got interested in plants. Uh, Back at the age of 14, I started to build the collection up, always working on the nursery with my father and I started to take an interest in the plants and it was really the kind of fiery colours that caught my, my eye really and uh, we run the nursery today I'm sat in the office with customers buzzing around and the, and the cafe's full of people and at this time of year you know they're just starting to kind of spring into life and the They've got such a vibrant colour, the reds, oranges and yellows. And, you know, they are really sharp and striking and they stand out very well against the pastel colours. You know, nowadays, we've seen it often at the Chelsea flower shows where you've got oranges pitched against purples. And, you know, you often get the yellows and the reds and the blues. And the, and I think it's just the, the striking colour that caught my eye. And as I started to grow them and build the collection up, I also started to realise how they were kind of very virus and disease and pest resistant and such an easy plant to grow. You say that they're easy to grow, but I know that some people, and this has been much debated in the Garden Magazine office, some people can find crocosmia a bit tricky because they don't need to be as dry as one might think they do, do they? What are the ideal conditions in terms of soil and moisture that they actually need? So firstly, crocosmias are sun lovers, so they need as much sun as you can give them. Now, whether that be the morning sun or the afternoon sun, you know, that's the, the minimum, but a full day of sun is perfect. And then secondly, the kind of with regards to the growing conditions, we're in the north of England and we're pretty much on boulder clay, so it's not very well drained at all, especially in the in the winter months, and they seem to cope with that perfectly well. Albeit, the bronze leaf varieties do need a better drainage. So in general, it's just a general well drained soil, like we say for pretty much most other other plants, the kind of perfect soils that people just don't seem to have. But anyway, plenty of loam, plenty of organic matter and you know i say it's the sunlight that's the main thing if you've got drier conditions stick to the ones with the bronze leaves if you're somewhere in between just a general garden aspect then you can happily grow the the ones with the normal grassy light leaves and then if you have got somewhere where it's wetter so say you are on kind of very wet clay or somewhere where there's kind of standing water in the winter months the varieties like lucifer and firebird with that pleated leaf they're the ones that will tolerate a wetter soil so, but as I say, as general, give them some sunshine and just a typical well-drained soil. And when you replant them, put some organic matter in there uh, and they'll really thrive. 
You've mentioned about dry conditions. Can you recommend any good selections, any particular cultivars that you'd grow if you have got drier soil? So if you've got a dry soil, obviously, you know, a lot of the plants you're going to choose are the kind of silver leaf plants because that identifies that the, the plant wants that dry spot. And on the Crocosmia front, bronze leaf is the, the actual thing to look for. You've got varieties like Gerbe d'Or, varieties like Solfaterre, you've got Saracen, Colball, all different varieties with quite a, a sultry, dark bronze leaf. And that, that looks really good. Again, I say when you plant with the kind of purples and the, there's also some varieties that have the kind of Aurea blood and aurea is basically a species that originates in a woodland environment and it also is used to a very dry soil and there's a variety in particular that's uh, well known called star of the east which happens to be the, the crocosmia with the biggest flower of all up to 10 centimeters across and it was one of the earlum giants that was raised in the in the 1930s there's another well-known one called crocosmia emily mckenzie and you can often buy them as really nice, healthy, fat, flowering corms in big potfuls, but it doesn't have the constitution to come through the winter because of its tissue culture, and they've kind of ruined the... Uh, they've actually weakened the plant, have they? Actually weakened the plant, and therefore, you know, people kind of... <laughs> they're kind of stunned by this. They've got Crocosmias and Mombrisha in the garden, especially the common one that they seem to can't get rid of, and then they go buy a pot of Crocosmia Emily Kenzie thinking, you know, I've got these coming out my ears, I'll be able to grow this easy, and then it fails in front of their eyes, and they're... Uh, but again, a very striking flower. And I think it's the kind of vibrancy and also the detailing that you get on some of the flowers. You know, there's no double varieties out there. Every flower you're kind of seeing into the throat. And, you know, they're, they're very kind of like, you know, I say African, very kind of hot and very kind of, you know, cheery colours. So how do you ensure that you get a good amount of flower from Crocosmia? Do they need to be divided or split each year or can they last a bit longer? And what's the ideal way to divide them and then put them back into the ground? Right, so Crocosmia is like anything. Any any plants and perennials always thrive on a bit of TLC, firstly being positioned in the right aspect, as we said, you know, plenty of sunshine. And then secondly, positioning them in the, the right soil and then treating them right in the, in the years to come. So you can plant them at any time of year. And if you're planting them now, just make sure you water them in well. Mix that organic matter in to help them establish quicker. And then I always say leave them for about three years. And after three years, you'll find that the clumps kind of peaked. They've really kind of filled out and they kind of they've sent off little offsets and, you know, you've got more of a clump on your hands. And then the time to split them up is in the autumn. And if you don't split them up and leave them be, what happens is each corm struggles to kind of find enough energy and nutrients to produce a flower stem bigger enough and giving you enough flower. And the kind of number of flower stems reduce and the amount of buds on each flower stem reduces. So in the third year, it's crucial to dig them up once you've cut them back, so you're kind of looking mid to late October, dig them up, tease the corms out. You sometimes might need a couple of forks back to back. Tease the corms out and then replant them. And you end up thinning them out by a good two-thirds to three-quarters. You'll end up taking out and planting somewhere else or giving, you know, to a friend or a neighbour or putting on the embankment at the bottom of the garden. And then <laughs> those corms that you do replant, give them a couple of inches between each one. And then you'll find that they'll come away with less leaf that following year more buds more flower stems per bud uh and you know they, they really thrive lucifer is a very well-known variety becomes a bit of a problematic one because it's so tall at the kind of four to five feet in height and people will leave it in the ground for numerous years on end and once you get beyond the kind of fifth year the corms every year will stack up one on top of each other 
and that kind of the joint between the comb and the flower stem is getting nearer and nearer to the surface causing the the flower stem to kind of lean over at kind of 45 degrees so lucifer again wants replanting every third year dig the combs up keep the biggest ones and put those back in the ground and with lucifer put them deeper down put the combs about eight inches under and then you'll end up with that eight inches of soil helping support the flower spike less leaves each flower spike will have multiple side branches flowering sprays and then you're getting the best out of them and you're getting the flower which is what we what we all want at the end of the day john many thanks for your time and, and your brilliant crocosmia advice pleasure thank you very much You can read the Crocosmia plant profile, complete with our trademark plate comparison photograph, in this month's issue of The Garden. If you're an RHS member, you'll know the magazine is delivered to your door for free every month. If you're not a member, then why not join today? The benefits include unlimited free entry to all four RHS gardens, along with priority booking and discounted entry to RHS events and shows. There's links to more information about RHS membership on our programme page at rhs.org.uk forward slash The Garden Podcast. And now back to the office. As editor, I'm literally making the final few amendments and changes for the upcoming August issue. And as ever, I hope there's lots of interesting articles in it. Michael Michaud, owner of Sea Spring Seeds, takes us through a selection of Mexican veg that grow well in UK climate. If you want to add a bit of spice and tinginess to your veg plot, then this is a really good article to read. Renowned plantsman Roy Lancaster does one of his visits to the independent plant nursery this month, and he goes to a place called Crafty Plants. It's a Tillandsia, or air plant nursery, and he revels in the fascinating shapes, structure, leaf formation, and growing requirements of what air plants need. I've actually got a few of these plants in our bathroom at home, and they grow really well, and they're just fascinating to look at. There's a couple of garden visits as well, two quite different gardens. One is a large, rather rambling, beautiful Devon garden called Barrow Farm, and the other is a smaller space called The Hollow in Swanage in Dorset. And for anybody who loves magnolias, then you'll really enjoy an article by Jim Gardner. Jim was our former curator at RHS Garden Wisley, and he's also been an executive vice president of the RHS. He's a great tree expert, and especially magnolias. And in this four-page article, he tells us all about some of the subtle differences between different selections of magnolia grandiflora. Some of the key figures in magazine and newspaper production, who are far too overlooked in my opinion, are the sub-editors, whose role it is to dot the I's and cross the T's, and to make sure our grammar and spelling and punctuation are all correct. My colleague Jeremy Kirk has been keeping the magazine team in line for the last 21 years. Jeremy Kirk, you are the sub-editor on The Garden magazine, and how many years might you remember that you've been working on the mag? Uh, just past 21, I think it was. Wow, 21, very happy, glorious years, I'm sure. There have been some ups and downs, but yeah. <laughs> and some remark changes, really. So, so before we get into those changes, just describe what is your role, what do you do day to day? Once, we're talking about features in the garden, once the... Uh, text the copy has come in and it's been edited and laid out on page and it's just about ready to be sort of checked off by the author i have a go over it and i'm trying to iron out all the 
glitches and any sort of mistakes I find, check all the names, check this and that. But basically, I think I'm a bit like the exhibitor just before the judges come round the floral marquee, snipping off all the dead leaves and sweeping away the cobwebs. So my job is, if the reader is distracted by something they shouldn't have been, then I haven't done my job well. This is something that I'm really proud of. You know, so many local newspapers and different magazines have actually got rid of the role of sub-editing and we're all a lot poorer for it. But we've always maintained that it's an absolutely vital role and your skill and passion for it is absolutely vital. But it's something that, in a way, that if people don't notice the work you've done, then you're doing a really good job. Yes, it's, it's only, only when I um, make a mistake here. Uh, do they know about sub-editors? Yeah. And, and the beauty of the members is that they tell us what they think. Don't they? So that if we do put a comma in the wrong place or we misuse a semicolon, we hear about it. We're pulled up, we are. Some are quite correct. (laughs) Some are (laughs) outrageously ridiculous. Yeah. (laughs) No, but that's always been the case. I mean, we don't get the magazine translated anymore into Japanese, but years ago it was. And what was really interesting to me is when the Japanese translator would come back and say, Who is they in this sentence? To what does it refer? It really sort of wakes you up on how. ambiguities, you know, and and inconsistencies. You've got to keep an eye out for those. So one of the things that we do live by is the style guide. And most publications have a style guide, which is kind of an in-house shorthand for the way we do things or the way we write things or express things. Uh, You are the master of that style guide. So what sort of things are on it? Curator, not master. I inherited this and we just keep adapting it as the years go by. There's a spelling list, as most style guides would have, is if there's two ways of spelling a word, how do we do it? Like fulfilment, how many L's are in fulfilment, that sort of thing. That's in our spelling list. And then we have, well, I have a whole list of sort of um, categories of how to do things, how to express a book title. We do whatever it is, book, author, publisher, date, ISBN number, that sort of thing. How to express numbers and dates. That's what's in a style. Because numbers is quite an important one, especially for areas, isn't it? Because we do uh, the thorny issue. I can see you sighing as I say the, the thorny issue of metric and imperial. Yeah, yeah, it was. Uh, it's bounced back and forth over the years. We used to be imperial and metric. In you know, we would do imperial measurements and put the metric equivalent in brackets afterwards. Then we swapped over, and then we tried being just solely metric. And there was a outrage. Even it turned up at the annual general meeting. So we are still printing the metric measurements and And putting the imperial equivalent. So what about banned words? Because the fury and fire that can come from your desk if if a a very slips through. I have a story of a a former editor storming back from an annual general meeting saying, never again is the word stunning going to be used in this magazine. Because somebody stood up and said, oh, is everything stunning in the garden? We have a list here. I have amongst amidst, whilst, all these ST endings, we hate them. Rockery is a banned word. It should be rock garden. It should be rock garden, of course. Very. Because there's a lot of varies. We get get about one very a year, I hope. Uh, (laughs) Stunning, as I say. Unique. That's a horrible Uh. one. Unique. (laughs) Everything's unique. No, it isn't. Sorry. And on it goes. We have some certain... What about highlights? Highlights, well... You don't like a highlight, do you? I I don't mind that. I do have an issue with... Overuse of theatrical similes, like in the limelight, centre stage. Oh, all these, yeah. yeah we, I love it's, this it's, conversation, it's, it's, it's brilliant. Well, the thing is, it's again back to this distraction. If there's anything that seems a bit clichéd or hackneyed, it's as much a distraction as um, 
a misspelt word, something which stops the reader and says, oh, that's a bad way to express that, is wrong. We failed. I think one of the things that we do tease you about, but I really like the the approach is your golden rule, that if it looks wrong sometimes on page, and I think a lot of people forget that when you're reading something, that actually not only is there the grammar and the um, the message and the consistency to what's being written, but there's also a visual approach. So that's why we don't start sentences with a year, with a number. We wouldn't start with 1976, because it kind of stops you in your track because you don't, your eye doesn't know where to sit between the letter, the numbers and the previous full stop. And I really like, that's what I've learned from you a lot is actually, yes, it's about how style, yes, it's about consistency, but also there's just that visual delight that people when they're reading things and if, if something stops you in your tracks, it's an uncomfortable read. Oh, indeed. Even like where the lines break and stuff. Uh, we look to have a certain elegance and a smoothness that the reader just flows from one end to the other. I know that never happens, but uh, that's the idea. You're asking about the golden rule. It is. Break any of these styles if using them makes something look odd or stops the reader in his or her tracks. If a reader's attention is distracted by how something is presented rather than what is being said, it is wrong. What's your biggest satisfaction out of the job? I'm, I'm not uh, being rude about the 21 years, but you've seen a huge amount of change within the RHS, but also within language, tone of voice, who our um, members are. What's your kind of biggest, biggest satisfaction that you take from I it? had, before I started working here, a great regard for the journal and then the garden. And if I have one satisfaction, it's helping to produce the finest gardening magazine in the world. Couldn't have put it better myself. Jeremy, thank you very much for your time. You're welcome. Finally, you don't have to have perfect grammar to be a great photographer, but decent spelling sure does help when you're making accurate photo labels. The annual RHS Photographic Competition is a subject close to my heart. We're just about to announce 2019's winners and open the 2020 contest, and I'm proud to be chair of the judging panel. I have to say I've been involved with the competition for about 10 years now and I am still fascinated and inspired by the creative and horticultural combination that makes great garden photography. This year we've received more than 8,000 entries to the competition. It's free to enter and people can submit their best images on a variety of subjects from plants to urban gardening, wildlife and there's even categories for young people too. It's been both great fun and a huge challenge choosing the best photos. Some of the winning images will be on show at the RHS Botanical Art and Photography Show, which runs in our Lindley Hall in London from the 23rd to the 25th of July. And if you can't make it to the Lindley Library exhibition, the photos will also be on tour across the RHS gardens in September. Links to more details can be found on our programme page. But what's the secret of a good garden photo? Is there a formula or a mysterious artistic je ne sais quoi? Andrea, you're a very well-known and multi-award-winning garden photographer, and you've been a judge with me for the RHS Photographic Competition for a few years now. So what is it that you enjoy most about being a judge? Well, I think the best thing for me is actually having a chance to look at other people's photographs for a change. (laughs) Um, I spend hours editing my own shots, as you can imagine, in front of screens, and I think it was so refreshing to look at some pictures by other people It was a real treat. And I especially love looking at pictures which are 
of a subject that I love so much and are so inspiring and of all ages and of all interests. So it was great fun to do. I've never thought about that, actually, for garden photographers, that you actually don't really probably see that many other people's work. In, in my job, I get to see all of your works um, from everybody, from different angles. Um, but, I, yeah, it's probably quite a solitary thing, actually, being a garden photographer and not only taking the photos, but then having to process them all on the screen. Oh, absolutely. Trolling through hundreds and hundreds of images, um, all taken by yourself. <laughs> You've seen them all before, but in a different context. <laughs> but but uh, seeing other people's is really interesting. I think I learn a lot from it each year too. I look at different people's way of thinking, different angles, uh, different viewpoints, and sense of humour too. And I think that's so important. I'm thinking particularly of uh, an image in the, I think it was in the under 11 section. I love the picture of the Land Rover driving through the, the box hedge. Yeah, it's a, it's a toy Land Rover, isn't it? And it's a kid's yeah. eye view of gra- driving through the hedge. But it's really, it is really fun, isn't it? It's really fun. And it's nice that I think people have looked at it with a sort of comical eye as well as just taking it all very very seriously a sense of humor helps in lots of ways doesn't it doesn't it just in so many ways in life yes uh, so look we'll come back on to some of those um, categories in, in a bit but were there a couple of standout images maybe other than the land rover in the box head were there some other standout images that you noticed and and why did they grab your eye one i thought apart from the the urban images I think the urban garden images, I think the um, aerial shot, of course, was a bit of a stunner. I think all the judges were really blown away by that. And, and it's a drone shot of all, it's all these small segments, like kind of a regimented allotment in, in America, isn't it? And it's all these small individual gardens that make up the sum of a greater whole. And it's, it is actually executed beautifully. And I think it's framed beautifully with the road around it too. Yeah, it's, it's almost faultless, I think, in the sort of composition uh, and taken by a drone. But, but obviously, it just looks very high quality. It's been well done and there's a lot of detail in there. It's one of these images that I think you can see as a whole, as a graphic image, and then you can keep looking into it and into it and further and further and there's more and more detail and it's, uh, I think it well deserves its uh, overall winner status. So we have eight categories in the competition, Andrea, from abstract to wildlife or urban gardening to the general entries via social media feed. What's your favourite category and why? I think my favourite category has to be celebrating gardens. Okay. Because I think that's sort of what a garden photographer does or aims to do every day that we go out and work. We are hopefully celebrating gardens and passing on that inspiration to other people. That's what I would really hope that we would be doing. I think that's really interesting because having judged for quite a few years now, it's celebrating gardens or the capturing the essence of a garden, which is a category that's not always that well submitted, isn't it? I think, do people find it quite difficult to get that celebration or that personality of a garden across in photography? I think that's the problem. It possibly is the most difficult. And I think in order to capture the garden at its peak, most people forget that they do have to get up quite early. I think in order to get that beautiful light, Mm. um, and I think this is particularly highlighted in the Tulip Festival image with the pictures of the tulips and the rays of the sun coming up behind it, that must have been done very early in the morning. And I think it does make it more difficult to capture. And I think people look at gardens in the broad daylight most of the time 
and it doesn't quite have that great atmosphere that each end of the day in the golden hour, if you like, that can bring, it can really make that celebration sort of zing. So garden photography is clearly a real passion for so many people nowadays, especially with cameras on smartphones. What's your professional advice for when people are taking photos of plants and gardens? I would say that the best advice I could give would be to really look carefully and personally don't believe in taking a zillion pictures and then picking out the best one afterwards. I think it's worth treating, whether it's a smartphone or whether it's a camera, expensive or not, treat that piece of equipment as an artist does when he goes out and paints on plein air and sets up his easel and he makes a jolly good decision about what he's going to photograph and the angle. Think about it, walk round the subject if you can and choose the best angle and then either light it if you're under controlled conditions or if you're out in the garden, you can sometimes wait for a little bit of light, watch the clouds and see if the little ping of light is going to happen because that little ping of light can make all the difference. Well, I think that's very good advice. And it sounds like actually you employ that as well for when you're doing your garden and plant photography, especially if you're up early or waiting late at night for that perfect light. So um, that's all brilliant advice. Andrea, thank you very much as ever for being a judge on the photo competition. And uh, oh, thank, you, pleasure. and thank you for your insight and, and, and advice. It's been good to speak to you. If you want to see some of the images that Andrew has been talking about, check out the website at rhs.org.uk forward slash photocomp. Well, that's all we've got time for in today's podcast. We'll be back with more sounds from the garden next month. Until then, from me, Chris Young, and all the magazine team, goodbye. <laughs>